All right. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. This is a live broadcast. If you missed any of the live broadcasts, you can catch us on the podcasting platforms like iTunes, like Spotify, like iHeartRadio, which is available on Smart TV, on the app as well. If you have a plasma screen TV or Roku, uh, you can catch us there. Amazon Fire as well, I believe. You can catch us on iHeartRadio there and a number of other podcasting platforms. Uh, Thank you so much for rejoining us. Uh, for this live broadcast. Now, our next guest is a senior researcher for the Global Policy Institute. Uh, he has been on the program before. His name is George Samuley, and he's joining us on the live link right now. Hello, George. Uh, hi, Patrick. How are you? I'm great. I'm great, George. Thank you for, for joining us. Um, it's That's a strange right. time uh, politically in, in, the, in the world, particularly in the West, uh, under the cover of of COVID, uh, politics is not business as usual. It's being conducted on a virtual uh, platform <laughs> rather than uh, a real one. Um, so it's looking at the U.S. political scene. It's incredibly bizarre. I want to talk to you about your mm-hmm. impressions of the Democratic National Convention. I think this is really important, and I'll tell you why, George, because this is the first time in history that our you know our democracy in the West is being funneled through a digital pipe. <laughs> so, yeah. what what do you think about this? What were your impressions? I mean, how do you feel about this in general, from a you know political or you know, democracy point of view? That what we're kind of going through right now. What are your your thoughts on this generally? Well, I, to be honest, um, political conventions are not what they used to be. Um, <clears throat> there was a time when uh, the, the nominee of a party was actually decided at the convention. Um, this hasn't been the case in decades. And it hasn't, and in decades, there haven't been any really uh, interesting or uh, con- uh, controversial events. Um, the last uh, interesting convention that I can think of was probably 1972, the George McGovern Democratic Convention, not because there was any uncertainty as to who would be the nominee, but there were all sorts of interesting and unusual characters who came up to the podium, and it really wasn't tightly controlled in the way that conventions um, have been in recent decades. So in that sense, I don't think the change was that great. Um, what was surprising was the poor production values of this particular convention. You would have thought that uh, the Democrats with Hollywood in their pocket and with Silicon Valley also largely in their pocket would have churned out a very slick uh, production. But instead, it was really very poorly produced, uh, poorly crafted, um, and it really wasn't clear what they were trying to do. I mean, the point about a convention these days is, as I say, not in order to uh, uh, deal with the uncertainty as who will be the nominee, but to rally the base, get everybody enthused about the ticket, so that they would leave the convention excited about November and ready to work uh, for the party um, in the, during the election. Um, this wasn't done this time. Um, the speakers that the uh, Democrats chose 
were in large part uh, Republican retreads um, who expressed their disgust with um, Donald Trump. The problem there was that first, there's, there's, they had nothing to say that would actually enthuse the base. I mean, the base really didn't want to hear from Colin Powell and John Kasich and Brett McGurk and Mrs. John McCain. Um, so there was that. Also, they were against Trump in 2016, so there was no new development here. If the Democrats had been able to produce um, some Republicans who had supported Trump in 2016 but had now turned against him in disgust, that would be one thing. But just wheeling out uh, the, the familiar crowd of disgruntled national security types to tell us again what a horrible person uh, Trump was, I think uh, was a complete waste of time. But the second thing that was problematic is that the, the people who actually would excite the base, um, such as uh, Bernie Sanders or AOC, were really given very short shrift. Um, and that does seem to be puzzling. Because whatever you think of uh, Sanders or AOC, they do get the base excited. And giving Colin Powell um, more time than either of them, to me, made very little sense. So I felt that the, uh, the Democrats really come out of this uh, convention really without too many um, achievements. And I would be very surprised if they get any kind of a bump in the polls as a result. Yeah, I, I'm going to agree with you, George. I think it actually might have hurt them a little bit. It might have yep. really turned off some of their younger supporters. Uh, it was it was definitely the con the virtual convention, whatever you want to call it. It was definitely geared towards the older uh, Democrat stalwart audience. I don't. Do you agree with me on on that? Was it? Absolutely. Um, it was very much, um, <clears throat> as, as I said, all these John Kasich, Colin Powell, um, the lauding uh, John McCain. These were elderly um, people, not, not the young people that you're supposed to get enthused because they are the people who are actually going to do the party work, the people who get excited by AOC, by Ilan Omar, by Presley. Um, Rashid Tlaib, they're, you know, they're, they're the people you want to energize because they are the ones who are going to do all the work before the election. You know, they, they didn't do that. Um, and instead, they really brought on these elderly types whose message was uh, Trump is really terrible uh, and we want to restore the status quo ante. We want to go back to the good old days of uh, Obama and Clinton and it's hard to believe that the uh, younger Democrats really want to go back to that. And it's particularly surprising when this was exactly the tactic that the Democrats uh, used in 2016, which is Hillary Clinton will be the continuation of Obama. What we want is just um, restoration of Obama and to a certain extent, a restoration of the Clintons. And nobody wanted it then. So it's surprising that four years on, the Democrats seem to think that uh, the party wants it now. Yeah, and, and with, with AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they actually, they gave her a makeover. She came out in the kind of uh, skimpy Nancy Pelosi cocktail dress, yeah. sh shoulders exposed, 
uh, you know, screen cut off at the chest yeah. with an Amer- American flag behind her, giving this kind of contrived, you know, uh, establishment delivery. So I think once I think the machine, e- even her being processed through the, the Democratic Party machine, have turning her into a, a trying to give her a mainstream look mm-hmm. uh, and, and a Pelosi type um, uh, look, you know, maybe they're signaling she's the future, you know, House leader one day potentially, but or, you know, she'll run for the presidency in 2028, I'm sure, at the earliest possible opportunity. Yes. But 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 it, doesn't it show you, George, that with the oligarchy that really controls the Democratic Party, the media complex mm-hmm. as well that's attached to it mm-hmm. um, and any rebels, any insurgents within the party, if they're any good and have any appeal, they're going to try to capture them and mm-hmm. mainstream them, basically. What, what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, the Democrats made their pitch to the donors. That's that's who they were trying to uh, appeal to. Um, so uh, you know that you know we want you to send us our cash. There's not going to be any radical changes here. Um, there was that wonderful headline in the Wall Street Journal, something like um, uh, the 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 nomination of um, Kamala Harris has uh, relieved fears in Wall Street. Uh, so that's that's the the Democrats' goal. Well, thank God, Wall Street is happy with Kamala Harris. They they know they have a friend uh, in her, and and that that's really their pitch. And and what is so surprising about this is that the Democrats had to win back the voters that they lost in 2016. Those um, white. Uh, uh, middle class, working class uh, voters, in particularly in the Midwest and the Rust Belt, who had voted twice for Obama and had now gone over to Donald Trump. These are the people you have to uh, go for. Not the donors. They've got the donors. They had the donors in 2016. They outraised the Republicans easily in 2016. But they had to get these um, voters who had abandoned them and had gone over to Donald Trump. And again, this is something the Democrats failed to do. They had no message at all for that um, uh, you know, middle-class uh, white American uh, vote um, who, were, who are concerned about jobs. They're concerned about, uh, obviously, the lockdowns and what that has meant to um, employment. But they're still concerned with what has been going on in um, in recent years, which is outsourcing, uh, shipping jobs overseas, uh, the financialization of the economy, um, and their general replaceability uh, by um, immigrant workers, whether illegal workers or by um, H-1B visa holders. Those were the voters that uh, Donald Trump had appealed to successfully in 2016. And these were the voters that, that um, uh, the Democrats should be appealing to. And instead, they had nothing to say to them. Yeah, because, you know, who's you're talking about, you know, who's the most powerful demographic, you know, what what's the swing vote? What's the block that really elects American presidents historically, at least in the last, let's say, 30, 30 years or so, 40 years? Yeah. It's white suburban women. This mm-hmm. is the most powerful demographic in America. So whoever can win over that. Now, I'm not saying that Trump's done a particularly good job there. He's definitely lost a lot mm-hmm. uh, of white suburban women in the last you know, four years, uh, mainly because of his poor bedside manner and, you know, and the fact that, you know, a lot of these people, 
still watch CNN, uh, a steady diet of CNN, MSNBC, Washington Post, New York Times. So they're going to get all this day in, day out negative coverage. But but, uh, you know, this this message coming from the, uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter uh, lobby, you know, mm-hmm. defund the police. Yes. And, and one activist said this during the uh, virtual convention. We're going to abolish the police. We're going to abolish prisons. We're going to abolish ICE, the uh, immigration service. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how is that going to win over the white suburban women, the middle class women? I don't. So there's a real disconnect with this. They've used the the, the angst from the George Floyd protests mm-hmm. to generate media ratings for months mm-hmm. and to basically set mobs really against the establishment or the the the, the White House effectively, yes. the Republican establishment. But is that going to really translate into the votes they need in November? That's the that's the question. What do you think? Well, I think it's an excellent question because, um, yes, uh, the Democrats have a lock on the minority vote. Um, They've played the George Floyd uh, protests uh, very well, and and they're going to get the the usual 90 to 95 percent of the African-American vote. Democrats always get that. That isn't enough to put them over the top um, in the election. And um, particularly when there's really not that much enthusiasm for Biden. So, you know, yes, the the African-Americans, of course, will will vote for uh, the Democrats, but unlikely to do so um, in the numbers in which they voted for Obama. They they just can't translate into that enthusiasm they had for Obama. It doesn't translate into enthusiasm for Biden. But again, it goes back to that, um, that, you know, white middle-class vote that is concerned about law and order. And when they see every night uh, riots uh, in cities, um, governors, um, democratic governors, democratic mayors uh, being unwilling to deal with them firmly, and when they hear about uh, soaring crime rates in New York City, uh, in Chicago, and in other major cities, this makes them concerned. And this goes back again to what happened in the 1960s and 1970s when there was a sudden uh, uh, surge of uh, violent crime. Um, That uh, white working class, middle class vote drifted over to the Republicans because the Democrats were seen to be um, either too weak to deal with the, with the crime, or they were, that they were seen to be secretly supporting it because they thought it might serve their political purposes. And I think that's what's happening today when it seems like these um, uh, the Democrat mayors like Bill de Blasio um, and some of those, that, you know, the woman in Chicago, they seem to be implicitly kind of with a nudge and a wink um, encouraging um, the protesters and, and the, the violence. And so I think that's that's going to turn off voters. I mean, he can't but turn them off. And, you know, they may not like Trump, but they will still see Trump as somebody who will protect them far more so than uh, the Democrats would. Yeah, I think I think he's he, Trump's in a bit of a he's still in a bit of a bind because 
I think uh, the his success and Clinton's failure in 2016 was also a, to a large degree that the media, the pollsters, uh, and because of the skewed polling and so forth, they didn't really take Trump seriously. So there wasn't that kind of alarm clarion call that, you know, this is do or die, that sort of thing. I mean, they do have, have that do or die call uh, on 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 the alarm right now for this election that they, they didn't really have it in 2016 they they almost didn't take it seriously until the last couple of weeks yes um so he doesn't have that element of surprise he yes. does have the incumbency but then his advantage of the incumbency has been basically ground ground away and almost dissipated by the covid crisis in the last six months mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um had there not been the covid crisis i think we're looking at a landslide right now mm -hmm. uh, because of the the economy would just be you know firing off on all cylinders this summer we you know major league baseball going everyone just having a great time i mean a shoe in so that's not going to happen so mm -hmm. he is actually this is this is going to be with with a low uh, i think there's going to be people not voting on both sides Republican mm -hmm. and Democrat, uh, potentially a lower voter turnout also because of this issue with uh, polls, in-person voting at polls versus mail-in votes. Mm -hmm. uh, just the fact that they're floating. What do you think about this whole mail-in post, post office controversy? I mean, the, the fact that they're floating that out to me is bizarre. I mean, isn't voting the most easiest thing to social distance? I, I one would have thought so, and really, there should be a, a quite simple uh, solution to this. Not not the the mail and stuff, which is a, a very complicated and solution, which will almost certainly lead to disaster. Because all of our experience of mail in voting is that that, that it's it's rife for uh, fraud and corruption. But then an easy solution would be okay. Let's keep the uh, polling places open for two days. For three days, I mean that, that, that's a much easier thing. I mean, if if really we maintain social distancing, then you know, you know, let's let's keep the polling places open for two three days. That could address all all of those uh, issues mm -hmm. uh, far better than uh, than the mailing. And uh, but I think the Democrats see the mail-in voting as something that they can uh, work better and and that they could uh, you know deal with uh, more successfully than the Republicans. They they are going all in for this uh, mail-in voting. I think that would be a, a uh, absolutely a catastrophic uh, decision. And then and I do think that the result would be that, w you know, we would just be debating the election outcome for months, if not years. I mean, we were, you know, we, we had the experience of 2016 when we're still um, arguing about uh, Russia and, you know, you know what, what, what Russia was supposed to have done in 2016. Can you imagine what we'll be doing, um, you know, with the mail-in voting and all of the questions that are going to arise as to um, which were legitimate uh, ballots, which were not legitimate, which were legitimately um, discarded and which weren't. I, I mean, it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. But you're, you're right about the issue of enthusiasm and you got the sense from the Democratic Convention that the, the party leaders are really very, very concerned about uh, the Democrat voters' reluctance to, um, to go out and vote. And hence this, this almost hysterical demand 
vote, 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 as if the people don't know that on election day you are supposed to vote. But somehow the Democrats are afraid that you know the lack of enthusiasm for the party ticket might uh, lead their supporters to uh, stay home and not vote. So despite the the hostility to Trump and the, and the the passion that many Democrats have for uh, ousting Trump and for revenging uh, the humiliation of 2016, um, there's still a, a distinct lack of enthusiasm for Biden. I mean, it just, it just goes back to the, the same problem they had in 2016, a terrible lack of enthusiasm for the party nominee who wasn't really seen to uh, express the aspirations of you know the, the Democratic base. But I mean, yeah, um, you know, on on the postal voting issue, you know, we've had absentee ballots. That that that's a, a feature that's always been on offer for for Americans forever. And but it's always been a small amount of votes. So it's you know, active duty military who are overseas, people who are working uh, foreign service, uh, you know, U.S. citizens living abroad, uh, will vote by absentee ballot. And, you know, even if in every single election, there's there are stories about uncounted absentee ballots, every single general election that I can remember. There's always been a problem with that, but it's always been a minority of votes. So it's a small enough amount of votes that it wouldn't be enough, even if they were discarded or weren't counted, it wouldn't be enough to to change the election unless unless they're all from like Florida in 2000, for instance. Yes. So, yeah. so I think what we're heading for, the problem with mail-in votes, especially if some states do it and others don't, especially if those are key swing states like Florida, like Ohio, like Michigan, yeah. like mm-hmm. like Wisconsin, the, the problem is it, it potentially is going to expand the window of the election process. So, you know, it's not like voting on the day, November 3rd, and then you have the result in the morning of the 4th. That's not going to happen mm-hmm. with postal voting. And the, what the Democrats will take advantage of here, George, mm-hmm. is the instability of that situation. Yes. So they will mobilize street protests, moveon.org, and yes. everything else that's putting people out on the street. Portland will burn to the ground mm-hmm. like, you know, like a Christmas tree and dad's a drunk chain smoker. Portland will be burned to the ground. So you'll have all of this instability. Then there'll be a 2000 situation where half the country will not accept the election results. And then it's going to go kick to some state Supreme Court. Yes. Uh, and then to the to, then to the Supreme Court. Yes. I think we're looking at much worse than 2000, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. This could be the nightmare of um, all nightmares for American elections, I I have a f- very funny feeling, George, that we're we're heading into something really tumultuous yes. in November. But your thoughts? <clears throat> yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's um uh, that's exactly what's likely to happen, and <clears throat> the turbulence in the streets um, would have a political effect. I mean, just like. You know, we've had the experience of the color revolutions in other countries where, um, you know, the suddenly, you know, people refuse to accept an election result. They're out on the street. There's violence. Um, you know, people get killed and so on. And, and then the political authorities start panicking. They don't know how to respond. And, you know, often they just cave in to the masses, uh, you know, the violent mob outside. 
Uh, and that's a possibility that this could happen. I mean, if there really is the, the violence in Portland, violence in uh, New York, uh, that courts might just be, you know, in, in a frame of mind, just, to, you know, let's, let's just, you know, to, uh, adopt the path of least resistance. Let's just, uh, you know, give, give it to the mob because they're the ones who are angriest uh, and, you know, they're the ones who need to be appeased. Yes. So it could be that somehow, you know, Supreme Court, state Supreme Courts, maybe even the U.S. Supreme Court will just make a decision to appease uh, the loudest, uh, most uh, violent, and most hysterical uh, voices uh, protesting the election result. But of course, the outcome of that would be that the other half of the country will not accept that result. And then there could well be in the kind of violence that you 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 get in countries where there's a color revolution. Where, okay, some bunch of people now are now in power who, you know, whether they won the election or not is very dubious, but whatever, you know, another part of the country absolutely refuses the legitimacy of their seizure of power. So I think that's, uh, you know, that's very likely to happen. And I think the Democrats are counting on the fact that they will probably, they're much better at protesting and at screaming louder than anybody else than um, the Trump supporters. And I, th and I think that they're, that's exactly what they're counting on. Yes, and the Republican Party becomes the party of regions <laughs> right. at that point. Yes, exactly. Um, so the theme, the theme of uh, today's broadcast is uh, basement hawks. So one of the things that you pointed out earlier was all of these national security experts that mm -hmm. came to endorse Joe Biden. You had all the sort of neocon hawks who signed on to that. That's not a big surprise. I mean, we saw, mm -hmm. you know, the, or the Mitt Romney's, the John Bolton's of the world have all kind of, you know, dispensed with Trump. So, but so this brings up a question. If Joe Biden manages to win in November, what would a Biden administration what would the foreign policy picture look like? What what would the cabinet look like? What sort of things would the Washington consensus be pursuing at that point? Well, I think you, you just have to look at the um, people who are currently around Biden and advising him on foreign policy. You have this uh, hawkish woman, Michelle Flournoy. She's likely to be the defense secretary. Um, you have um, Nicholas Burns, uh, who is of, uh, you know, remember him as from the, the 1999 bombing of Yugoslavia. He was involved in that. He was involved in the Iraq invasion. Um, he's been around forever. He's likely to get a very big job, maybe, maybe uh, Secretary of State. Um, you have Susan Rice. We know all about her. You have Samantha Power. You have... Um, uh, Tony Blinken, another another kind of um, Obama Clinton stalwart. Um, these are the people who will be around Biden, and they are really not making no secret of their agenda, which is restoration of the status quo ante, what they call quote American leadership of the world unquote means uh, more regime change uh, operations. Um, more uh, hostility towards uh, Russia, and um, more of the kind of um, 
cozy corporate deals from which they all make a, a ton of money. I mean, you know, these are all very, very rich people. They've been um, making a ton of money for years and years in moving in this uh, murky world of um, hedge funds, um, strategic advisors, uh, corporate boardrooms, uh, think tanks, um, and, uh, and private equity firms. They move in this world. So their kind of foreign policy agenda nicely lines up with their pockets. They make a lot of money from all of the various deals uh, that they urge. So <clears throat> we know that, you know, they, they would be signing all kinds of cozy economic deals with Silicon Valley, um, with um, uh, the, you know, the aerospace and the arms manufacturers, you know, they, they serve on the boards of all of these. Uh, but, you know, for instance, in the relations with China, you know, you know all the countries in which uh, they do very nicely through offshoring and outsourcing. Again, that's what you would get from this foreign policy team. So, you know, it's if you think of um, the Obama administration, you may think of the heyday of, let's say, the, the Clinton years, when there was this wonderful moment when at one and the same time, the United States was demanding regime change in four different countries. Um, Syria, Assad must go. Uh, Libya, uh, Gaddafi must go. Uh, Egypt, Mubarak must go. And Yemen, Saleh must go. Uh, we saw the catastrophic results of that. And we, you know, we can be sure that this will uh, continue um, in the Biden administration. Uh, I would think it's quite likely that they will um, uh, renew the war against Bashar al-Assad in Syria. It's very resentful that they failed in that. Um, and, you know, other places that they would, you know, continue with, uh, you know, regime change operation. They would <clears throat> almost certainly get more involved in uh, Ukraine. They're already making all sorts of uh, ridiculous assertions um, in Belarus. Uh, which is, you know, heating up an already volatile situation. So, you know, if you liked uh, some of the Obama years, I think that you're going to have a great time in during the Biden years. How do you think the, uh, uh, it, will there be any change in terms of uh, Washington's orientation towards uh, Israel and how things are developing there? Obviously, Trump is, you know, Israel's best friend uh, on so many levels for what's happened over the last couple of years. But would that status quo remain or would would the washington get even closer to israel or you know how would you see that I, playing yeah, out that's a that's a good question um some people are expecting um a biden administration to uh return to the joint comprehensive plan of action the, which was the <clears throat> the nuclear deal with iran i don't believe it for a moment i think that's a done deal and i think biden will just continue with the uh, trump policy and while uh, the Biden administration will probably be not as warm and as gushing uh, towards Israel as um, Trump has been. Uh, I also don't think there'll be any significant changes. I, I don't think that uh, there'll be uh, a return to uh, Tel Aviv as the uh, seat of the U.S. embassy. I think that'll be taken. Uh, you know, that's it. It's a done deal. Um, so. 
I actually don't think that there'll be any real change towards Israel, just other than on a personal level, there probably just won't, it won't be as warm as it has been under, under Trump. But if you remember, you know, during the Obama years, for all Obama's apparent irritation and dislike for Netanyahu, essentially, he didn't do anything uh, hostile to Israel's interests. I mean, uh, even when Israel openly insulted uh, Obama by building uh, settlements when they pledged not to, you know, Obama didn't do anything about it. And I think that the same will uh, apply now. So all of the uh, pro-Israeli policies that uh, Trump has pursued, uh, uh, the Biden team will just take it in the bank and work with it. They're not going to change any of that. Yeah. So Kamala Harris is, is absolutely, you know, joined at the hip with IPAC. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Biden's very pro IPAC, but yeah. like you said, um, it, you know, that, it, I don't see a big change there. Plus, there's also a, an opposition to Israeli policy that's kind of international. That's it's always going to be there, but you don't have that same uh, opposition in the kind of liberal West to hawkish policy against Russia or mm -hmm. you know against yes. the Eastern Bloc, and mm -hmm. so they can kind of get away with whatever. Uh, under a democratic, I mean, I mean, Trump's sanctioning Russia to the hilt, yes. and no NATO aggressive policies, no change there, no no dovish uh, yep. policies there. But I think the aggression we saw under the Obama administration towards the Ukraine, for instance, showed that the, they're very, very, you know, adept and willing to kind of go all out to undermine or to destabilize Russia's Western. Uh, perimeter, Western frontier, and yes. and push Europe further east. So, looking at the situation that's come in Belarus in the last week or yes. the last two weeks, you know that's interesting. I mean, if you have a democratic uh, presidency, that could really flare up. Mm -hmm. If that was to go a little bit further, first of all, what do you think about the situation? Do you think a color revolution has legs in in Belarus, and could it be emboldened by a Biden presidency? I think it does have legs, and uh, uh, and you know the Europeans uh, have been playing a very reckless game. They're already pouring a lot of money into Belarus. I mean, he's pouring fifty million dollars. That's that's an awful lot of money in a country that is quite poor. Uh, so they're kind of whipping up the um, the, the opposition. They're whipping up the, uh, the kind of uh, anti-Lukashenko um, fervor um, in the hope of really making trouble for Russia. I mean, somehow that um, if you know gets down to a complete chaos in, internally, uh, if there is uh, some outbreak of civil war. Um, you know, some troops go over to the uh, opposition, some troops don't, um, then there'll be a, a pressure on Russia to do something. Russia cannot allow uh, Belarus to become a kind of NATO satellite state. They, they cannot allow it. This is just too, too vital to their interests to allow a kind of a de facto NATO ally, you know, right there, you know, within a few miles of Moscow. Um, so that's the European game, and, and I think that that's the Americans are involved in this, uh, and it's a, a, a reckless policy in the sense that it's not going to help the Belarusians in any way, shape, or form, uh, because 
at a certain point, the Russians are just not going to tolerate this. But they feel that you know it it works to their advantage because it gives Russia headaches, it provokes Russia, um, it it gives NATO a uh, a raison d'être. Oh look, look how aggressive Russia is. You know, therefore we need more resources for NATO. Um, and I think that uh, you know it's I think it's a dangerous situation. I think it will get worse. Um, under a, a Biden administration. I mean, I think that they will try to pull a Ukraine um, color revolution type uh, in uh, in Belarus. Uh, we saw how absolutely disastrous that was for uh, Ukrainians. In, you know, they, they lost Crimea, they lost a, a large chunk of their territory. Um, but for the US and the EU, they think, hey, job well done. We've created a rift between two states that are basically, you know, joined at the hip and should be allies and friends. So job done. And I think they're trying to pull the same thing in uh, Belarus. Disastrous for Belarus, but uh, in, in terms of NATO policy, you know, it has a certain cynical uh, geopolitical uh, strategy behind it. Yeah, it's interesting. The uh, so, you know the opposition. Uh, candidate, I think she's gone into exile to uh, Lithuania now, and in kind of Guan Guaido fashion. Yes, I think it won't be long before the U.S. and uh, the Britain and and other uh, EU countries start to recognize her as the legitimate president of um, Belarus. So, in that sense, following the Venezuela, um, mm -hmm. you know, pantomime yes. uh, template for you know, I don't think she won the election I don't know what you think about this but I knowing how conservative Belarusians are generally you know the, she may have got votes in some of the cities but overall I think the heartland um, the traditional vote is carries the weight of any election there so I don't think she would have won even if there was irregularities uh, you know to, to, even hundred thousand people on the street is doesn't represent a country of many millions. Um, yeah. In terms of voting, but uh, so she's in exile. But her she leaked her platform that before they took the website down. We got a hold of it mm -hmm. via Southfront dot mm -hmm. uh, org, and mm -hmm. it's very specific. It, it, it decoupling Belarus from Russia's military uh, yeah. alliances, like this CSTO, yeah. pushing mm -hmm. them into NATO and the EU. They're very specific yes. uh, about their demands. Uh, Svetlana. Uh, yes. Tikhanovskaya, yep. I can't even pronounce her last yes. name properly. Right. <clears throat> um, so, yeah. you know, have you have you looked at any of this? I mean, I think this is mm -hmm. this is a major operation. Um, what are your Absolutely. thoughts? No, that's absolutely right. And they're doing the same thing that they did in Ukraine, which is that they're cultivating this um, fake uh, Belarusian nationalism. I mean, you know, the Belarusians, white Russians, are Russians. I mean, this is, you know, they're one people. Um, the whole um, idea that they're a separate nation, well, it was first of all uh, cultivated, this idea was cultivated by the Bolsheviks, who kind of created all sorts of artificial nations in large parts in order to um, suppress Russian nationalism, which the Bolsheviks always, well, first of all, they disliked and had disdain for what they called greater Russian chauvinism, but they also always saw Russian nationalism as a threat to Bolshevik rule. So they created a whole bunch of nations out of whole cloth, um, one of which was Belarus. Um, and of course, 
Um, you know, NATO has been very eager, NATO, all the Western powers, have been very eager, of course, to <clears throat> accept um, the Bolsheviks' um, artificial creations. And so, you know, just like the Bolsheviks, they now say, oh, yeah, yeah, Belarusians, you know, that's a separate nation, that's a, uh, a separate state. And they're very eager uh, to cultivate it for much the same reasons the Bolsheviks did, which is, hey, we can use this very nicely um, against uh, Russia. It, it, it's it's not likely to be as successful as it was in Ukraine because there is a kind of a, a very virulent strain of Ukrainian nationalism which comes you know in in the western part of the country the parts that used to be part of Poland um, <clears throat> that really does have a, a, a deep animus towards Russia um, that doesn't exist in uh, Belarus but that doesn't mean that. Um, the West won't uh, try to uh, cultivate this Belarusian nationalism as much as possible. I mean, they tried that before 1994. I mean, George Soros poured a lot of money into Belarus, uh, particularly in language development. I mean, Soros really wanted to uh, cultivate um, this the Belarusian language, which didn't go anywhere because everybody uh, speaks Russian there. So, um, you know, you know I, I, I agree with you. I don't think... Um, that um, she won the election. I think it's just extremely unlikely that that was. But I think that it's um, quite possible that at some point uh, the United States and the United Kingdom and then down the road Germany and France will recognize her as the, quote, uh, legitimate, unquote, uh, leader of um, Belarus. And then, of course, again, that just creates headaches uh, for the Belarusians, and of course, it creates headaches for the Russians. Um, doesn't do the Belarusians any any good, um, but, you know, again, the Europeans may think that this is quite useful for them. But let's keep in mind, the Belarusian economy is entirely integrated with the Russian economy. I mean, everything that's produced in those um, uh, giant factories in Belarus goes to the Russian market. So the moment somehow Belarus uh, moves towards the West, all of those factories are going to close down because there's no way that the, the goods that they manufacture will be of any interest to anyone in Europe. So these factories will close down. Uh, they'll be sold to the Western corporations for a song. And you know millions will suddenly be out of work and living in the kind of misery that um, Russians were living in during the 1990s, which incidentally, uh, Belarus uh, avoided. And so you know that that is certainly a great achievement on the part of Lukashenko that he avoided that whole um, kind of crazy crash capitalism that um, prevailed in Russia in the 90s and prevailed in other, you know other parts of the former Soviet Union. So Lukashenko achievement that he, he he avoided all of that um, you know workers had jobs and uh, you know people were paid on time and it was a you know it's been a, a fairly efficient relatively prosperous place um, vastly superior in many ways to uh, Ukraine which has been beset by one crisis after another ever since independence in 1991. Yeah, in, initially in the, the the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, much like like Russia, Belarus was overcome with um, you know organized crime. There was a little bit of an, an initial economic shock, and mm -hmm. crime and corruption was a big big problem. And then the uh, a government was formed, and they managed to get control of it to the point now where crime is so low yes. in Belarus. It is one of the safest countries yes. in the world. You can leave your car unlocked. 
in yes. Belarus, uh, in yes. Minsk, and it won't get broken into. I mean, yes. that's how things have changed there. So definitely, I think uh, the you know people generally should be happy about that. Certainly, I think the traditional voters who do remember the the, the shaky times uh, appreciate that sort of thing. I don't yeah. think the West appreciates it. Um, but isn't what's likely going to happen with Belarus is they'll do the whole Juan Guaido mm-hmm. uh, uh, charade with with Svetlana. Mm-hmm. She's the new rightful ruler of the country. So then they'll they'll put Magnitsky sanctions or yes. something on all the Belarusian oligarchs and. Uh, anybody connected with um, Lukashenko, and then it's, what's going to happen? It's just going to push them even closer towards towards Russia. Yeah, no, I think that, that's, is, yeah, that's exactly yeah. what's going to happen. I think then the union state that was you know they they created this uh, treaty in 1999, um, but. Uh, hasn't been implemented um, since 1999, largely uh, on account of um, uh, Lukashenko, who enjoys his um, kind of independent status. Um, now, I think Lukashenko really will have no choice but to um, uh, move forward with the union state. And uh, because, you know, he really has no um, allies or supporters um, in the West. I mean, it's a very strange uh, policy that the Western powers have adopted because during the past year or two, um, they've been cultivating Lukashenko as, uh, you know, in order to create headaches uh, for the Russians. Um, you know, there was a Pompeo, he visited um, uh, Belarus earlier this year. Uh, the United States opened an embassy in Minsk. And of course, you know, <laughs> what happens uh, soon after you have an, a U.S. embassy open somewhere, there's a coup. I mean, that's, that's a, I mean, it's like it, it, it follows like clockwork. You have an embassy, you know, next day you have a coup on your hands. Um, and, and yeah, that, that but what is interesting is that having cultivated this, this policy of, well, let's, uh, let's see if we can prize Lukashenko and Putin apart, um, they didn't continue with it. They abandoned that policy and suddenly went back to the old policy, which is Lukashenko is a dictator. He's the last dictator in Europe. He's the worst uh, person imaginable. Uh, we must sanction him. We must uh, get rid of him. So, you know, it, it's kind of incomprehensible why, you know, you abandon one policy and then uh, adopt another, which can only lead to one Consequence, namely that that union state uh, will come into being, because there's really no other no alternative um, in Belarus. Um, the Russia is not going to accept a color revolution uh, in Minsk. Um, Lukashenko has nowhere to go. He has no um, allies uh, in the West anymore. Um, he just he will have to just accept the terms of a, a union treaty, and so that that will be the consequence of this policy. That's interesting. So it could be an own goal, much like uh, the uh, Maidan yes. uh, coup was an own goal for the for the West. So the German Marshall Fund has been after uh, Belarus for a few years. I've been studying, going back, looking at their archives. So they've been prodding and funding and doing all the things uh, behind the scenes to undermine mm-hmm. uh, the you know the government there and then to promote this this youth upswell this color revolution. And so they, they're really kind of in their stride right now, the German Marshall Fund. And they were also very active 
in in the Ukraine as well. You know, yes. I think they back Klitschko as well. I think. Yes. Uh, so they're an interesting. They're 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 in there along with Radio Free Europe, and you, you see the same uh, actors there. And and I'm t- we're talking to George Samuel, author of. Uh, Bombs for Peace. Uh, there's a link to his book on the show page as well. It's about the war in Yugoslavia. So, do you think George? You know, are you, I think your book uh, obviously is quite relevant now because there is a potential uh, for instability, um, mm-hmm. but, and, but clashing between the West, between NATO and uh, Eastern European and Russian states. So, mm-hmm. uh, what what are the odds? Last before we before we wrap up here. A lot of people are going to be asking the question, George. You know, and you're a historian, so you might be able to answer it. You know, are are we he- are we heading towards uh, potentially, uh, you know, the red alert level in the coming years, based on what you're seeing now, or is this is it going to be a different kind of metamorphosis in terms of the tension uh, between NATO and uh, and Russia and its allied states? I, th- I think that uh, it's a very serious situation um, because um, this uh, uh, rebellion or refusal to accept the election outcome ha- is continuing and growing in strength. It's continuing growing in strength in large part because um, the Western countries are pouring a lot of money in uh, and they have um, every interest in fueling um, discontent and uh, uh, opposition within Belarus. And the longer this continues, the more likely it is that there'll be some kind of a provocative act, um, whether um, the, uh, the, the Belarus security forces uh, react with excessive uh, force, or whether there'll be some kind of a staged um, assassinations, uh, staged uh, sniper shooting, um, then there'll be some kind of a serious political crisis. And at that moment, um, some civil war could break out. I mean, they, and and then, you know, you, you, you know, Russia will be certainly uh, facing a serious problem as to you know how they should respond, and uh, and and it it'll be just a, a very very bad situation, and um, you have to think that the Western countries are playing an absolutely reckless. A foolish, dangerous game here that cannot possibly end well for anyone, least of all uh, for the Belarusians. And the and the Western countries know this. They know perfectly well that Belarus is absolutely vital uh, for Russia's security interests. They know perfectly well that uh, Belarus would suffer an economic catastrophe if it was prized away from uh, the Russian world. And yet they're going ahead with this and, uh, you know, ir- irrespective of the disasters that this would create for Europe itself. I mean, we're just talking about you know, the, the, the flow of immigrants and, uh, and the, you know, the uh, kind of the uh, flow of instability uh, into other countries. So, uh, you know, one would have to say that this is a, an absolutely reckless policy. And if there is a Biden administration, um, then things things could take a, a sharp deterioration, uh, you know, after January. Yes, yes, because I, I I don't see, for all of its faults, I I do see the Trump administration has has definitely. I mean, there's sanctions everywhere, and of course, what's going on with Iran and the maximum pressure campaigns on, you know, for economic sanctions on uh, Venezuela, Syria. 
and Iran are harsh, but they, they've backed off of the responsibility to protect doctrine, which was the main feature, I yes. think, of, of both Obama and Clinton presidencies, uh, yes. and the Bush presidency, for that matter. Um, yes. So they have, the Trump administration has backed away from the responsibility for, to protect the humanitarian intervention doctrine. So I think we, you know, we'll probably see a return or at least an attempted return to that with, with if Biden was to win. Yes, absolutely. I think that that's very likely. Responsibility to protect um, Susan Rice, Samantha Power, um, they, they, you know, they wholly believe in this, and uh, and they would certainly uh, try to uh, implement something with this. And Belarus is a very good candidate for them to try to do some variant of that. Uh, as is Syria, I think that uh, as we were talking earlier, um, there's unfinished business there. I mean, the, the uh, these uh, Obama retreads are still uh, angry and frustrated that their plans to uh, topple Bashar al-Assad um, failed. And I'm quite sure that they will try to revive that. Um, but but certainly um, Belarus would be a, a prime candidate, uh, particularly when you think of the um, malign influence of, of George Soros and the various people whom he has funded over the years, um, who you know who are very interested in uh, prizing away from the Russian world. And, well, at first it was Ukraine, but they're still very. But now they're very interested in prizing Belarus away from Russia. Yes. Yes. Well, there's a, there's a, there's a lot to uh, look forward to or not, depending on what the result, I guess, of the November U.S. election is. If there is a result, that's another whole thing that's us will might be up in the air through the new year. Perhaps we'll see. But uh, but yeah, we want to thank you very much for joining us this week, George Samley, author of Bombs for Peace: NATO's Humanitarian War on Yugoslavia. He's also a senior researcher at the Global Policy. Institute. Uh, thank you so much, George, thank for you joining for us. I enjoyed it very much. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That is George Samuel. And uh, we're going to be talking on the other side of the break to our roving correspondent for culture and sport, Basil Valentine. So stick around. This is the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We will be right back. <laughs> 